I love it when you tell me that we're gonna be in movies They make out like it's so hard but there's really nothing to it I love it when you tell me that we're gonna be in movies I don't mind dying if that's how we gotta do it Hello, hello, hello! Greetings and salutations from Brooklyn, New York. This is Make It Big. I am your host, Paul Stinson. Every week, or two weeks, or a month or so, I sit down with uh, an artist and talk to them about what they do and the meaning of success. Their days, their nights, successes, failures, devastating heartbreak... All right, I don't know if I've talked to anyone yet about devastating heartbreak, but, uh, you know, it could happen any day. Anyway, this week, I'm very excited to sit down finally with someone outside of my circle of acquaintances and bandmates at Stratton, moving on to uh, other fields, still in music, but classical now. Classical music, not something I know a whole lot about, definitely not my field of expertise, if I have any field of expertise, that is. Uh, anyway, classical music is not it. I definitely appreciate it, uh, you know, studied it somewhat in school, uh, no pieces here and there, composers and that kind of thing, but I'm very fortunate this week to talk to someone who indulged my ignorance. This week we are talking to David Leibowitz, professional conductor, was a professional oboist to start out with. He is also the founder and music director of the highly acclaimed New York Repertory Orchestra, or NIRO, which is now in its 15th season. He's been the principal conductor of the Massapequa Philharmonic Orchestra since 2003 and was a conductor of the Third Street Philharmonia at the Third Street Music School Settlement in New York City from 2003 to 2005. Since 2002, he's been on the conducting staff of the Rome Festival in Italy, leading opera, ballet, and concert performances. Recently named the conducting staff of the International Opera Institute at the Mod Pal Music Festival in La Salle, Illinois. There's all kinds of other experiences that he has. He's a... Uh, a very long career. Uh, check out his bio on the New York Repertory Orchestra page, which is nyro.org. We talk about it a little bit at the end. Also, if you're a supporter of classical music or even interested in it uh, and you know want to support classical music in, in the New York City area, please donate. And as you will hear, if you have room for a timpani somewhere, David wants to hear from you. <laughs> Anyway, I'm stoked to have this one. Uh, David's a great guy, and thank you, David, for, again, indulging my ignorance and also letting us use your apartment for uh, recording this. As David told me ahead of time, if a siren goes by outside his apartment, it sounds like it is right inside the room, and that is, in fact, the case, because the siren does go by, and it did sound like it was right in the room with us. So me, as usual, go to paulstinsonmusic.com, P-A-U-L-S-T-I-N-S-O-N, music.com, for all the latest news and events, podcasts, various uh, <clears throat> musical projects that I'm in. I've got a show coming up in my new band, Phantom Fifth, on October 30th, a nice Halloween show at Union Hall in Brooklyn with the lovely Karina Denneke from the Bay Area, who I also want to sit down with when she's out here to get her on the show. Anyway, all kinds of other stuff coming up. As usual, please go there. There's a contact form. You can email me. Uh, check out. Also, oh, yeah, yeah. If you listen to this on iTunes, please rate it, review it, comment. That helps boost it. Tell everyone else about it, you know, if you think people uh, might be interested in the show. 
word of mouth is always a great way to promote things. And so, you know, I'm trying to get this out there to as many people as possible. People who might be interested. I don't know. Is it interesting? I think it is. So if you think it's interesting and want to pass it on, that would be awesome. And yeah, email me, comments, uh, whatever. And this is a fairly long one again, so settle in and check it out. I won't prolong the intro too much more except to tell a sort of funny story when I I first got in touch with the orchestra I was just sort of looking for a musician maybe to talk to and uh, so I emailed and you know someone emailed me back and they're like great let's set up a time to talk and then they called and I was talking to some guy and uh you know telling him I was looking for a musician maybe and and he said oh so uh you don't want to interview me and I was like um maybe who are you? And it was David himself. <laughs> I was very embarrassed. I just didn't think that the director would uh, would call me back. And so, uh, yes, it was highly embarrassing. And again, thank you, David, for your indulgence of my faux pas. Once I realized who it was, I, I was very apologetic. So anyway, it worked out and, uh, and we got the interview done. And it's super interesting. Uh, he grew up through, uh, well, he got his musical education primarily through the New York public schools. So we talk a lot about arts funding in here and the importance of it uh, and his long career first as a player and then as a conductor and now a, a director of an orchestra. So without further ado, let us hear from David Leibowitz on this week's episode of Make It Big. Well, all right. So my first question for you is... Uh, how do you decide to start an orchestra? That that just seems like a daunting decision. Um, it does now, but when I first made the decision, I don't know that I actually made a decision to do that. It was just something that happened naturally. Um, I was in school. I'm a an oboist by training, right? And um, I was interested in conducting, and um, I studied a bit with the uh, director of the School of Music at Brooklyn College, the Conservatory of Music there, and um, informally, but uh, uh, quite a bit of study with her. And then I knew that I wanted to conduct, but I was playing a lot of freelance jobs here in New York as an oboist, um, and playing for bad conductors, which is a great, <laughs> it's a great way to learn, because you learn what not ever to do. And what makes a bad conductor? Um... Oh, that's that's a huge question, but um, but there are ma there are many things. It could be technical things that they do with their hands, uh, the way they speak to the orchestra, the uh, their knowledge of the music, their their um, familiarity with the score. Uh, you know, any of those things is uh, you know a reason to do the opposite. Um, and th and that's something that uh, you can't fake. You really can't fake your knowledge of the music to a group of musicians who know the music at least as well as you do in right. many ways. So if you, uh, you know, one of the things that um, musicians complain about conductors a lot is in rehearsal, for example, a conductor who will stop a rehearsal to work on something that is clearly the conductor's problem. So he or she is taking time from the rehearsal to work on something that they should have fixed at home, and and players recognize that immediately. You know the right, um, right. And it's why are you time? Right, why are you why are you stopping for yourself? 
So one of the one of the things that I I certainly learned uh, practically as a player and also from my teachers is that you don't stop a rehearsal for yourself. Um, you stop a rehearsal if something is wrong that can be fixed, and also you let the players know why you're stopping and going back because a lot of conductors um, will stop and say, "Okay, let's." go back to measure three again. Let's do that again. Okay, let's do that again. And the players are thinking to themselves, why Why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, those are just a few things. But um, as, a, as a player, you know, you see what not to do. But also, you have to learn what to do, which is where, you know, teachers and, and, and other experiences come in. So... Um, Anyway, I knew that I wanted to start an orchestra. I knew I wanted to conduct. I didn't know that I wanted to start an orchestra. Um, and I was doing some things at school and after school. And um, uh, I went to a conducting workshop. And these are um, week-long or weekend things that happen pretty uh, frequently around the country, around the world, where a master conducting teacher or two will um, have a, a small orchestra and maybe 10 or 15 conducting students, and each student gets up in front of the orchestra and has about 10, 15 minutes on a section of the music, and then you get feedback, and that happens over a weekend, and um, as I say, you get the feedback, and um, the you pay your fee, and that pays for the orchestra and the teacher's time. Right. And um, the this one that I went to, I'd gone to others, and... They were, they were good. I, I certainly got a lot out of them, um, but this one was ter- terrible. <laughs> and I thought we had a lot of bad experiences and I thought, early on with conductors. Well, I, 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 for many reasons, I thought I could uh, take the money that I spent for this thing that really didn't give me much feedback. I didn't learn much from the teachers that were involved. And these are very famous teachers. But um, I thought, well, I can call my friends who I play with and we'll put together a group and we'll read music and I'll, I'll conduct. I'll do my thing and I'll learn from that. And uh, so that's how the orchestra, the orchestra started. It started as a reading orchestra. And we would meet every couple of weeks and read through music and... Um, Without playing it. No, no. Oh, I'm okay. sorry. When I say read through it, I mean okay. we would sit down, the players would come, I'd bring the music, we'd put the music on the sand, and we would play through yeah, the right. piece. Okay. Um, and there are many reading orchestras. There are several here in New York. And that's it's kind of a fun thing to do. You sit down, you read through music that you may not know, and you just go through it. Right. And you may stop here and there, but the, the real purpose is to go through the piece. And you learn the piece, and you... Um, you know, it's good for the players, it's good for the conductor. So we did that for a couple of years, and uh, it sort of grew into a formal orchestra, New York Repertoire Orchestra, that does five concerts a year. Um, that doesn't do, we don't do readings anymore, we rehearse four concerts, um, four out concerts. So that's kind of how the orchestra started. Um, did, it wasn't a plan you... to, it wasn't a plan to the, um, there was no plan to go to where we are now. Okay. 
that just happened. And when you first got the idea, was it, well, of course it's going to be an orchestra, or did you start with smaller pieces, or you just knew enough people to be like, well, no, we, we'll just do, you know, the full orchestra? No, oh, we started with very big pieces. The fa- in fact, the first piece we started was the uh, Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, which is an enormous piece. And um, did we have everyone covering, did we have enough people to cover everything? No. Right. But <laughs> sure. But we had a lot, and as the you know we did that for several years, and um, we would do whatever the music was. Sometimes we wouldn't get parts covered, and sometimes we would, and sometimes we would have a couple of people in a string section. Sometimes we would have more, um, and so on. So uh, it was very sort of informal and a good learning experience, um, and that grew. And I discovered that um, wind players, woodwind and brass players, enjoy sight-reading music. And string players kind of hate it. Because they, uh, the string players play in a section, and the, uh, the, the way to make a section sound good is you have consistent bowings. Mm-hmm. Everyone bows together. And um, it's tricky, and that is that has to sort of happen over time in a piece. It's more difficult to sit down and sight read. A okay. piece. You can get all the notes, but the, the part of it that makes a section sound, you know, like a nice section, not just a group of individuals is something that takes time. And also, um, players, I also discovered wanted to be able to commit to, a performance rather than sort of have an open-ended, well, we'll read. Right, we're just getting together to play. And well, right, and it was yeah. difficult to find players on a bi-weekly basis who had the time because a lot of the players play in other groups and they're preparing for a concert. Right. And we're doing a reading. So, and totally understandable that your prime commitment is to a performance. Yep. And if you have time, you can sit and read. So... That kind of that's how we sort of changed. We uh, did some concerts and people were able to commit, and that's how we grew into um, having a full season. Where were you meeting early on? Did you have a space at the college or? Oh you no, can't I was just come to your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to. Um, I have had ensembles in the apartment, um, but not more than nine or ten people. Right. Um, no, I was out of school by then. And I rented space in uh, Martin Luther King High School, mm. which is down near Lincoln Center. Okay. Um, west of Lincoln Center. And anyone can rent space in any of the public schools in the city if the space is available and, you know, there are certain hoops to jump through. Right. But it was relatively inexpensive. Um, one of the fun things was that when you rent the space, you get the space and nothing else. So like an no, auditorium or what? what yeah, the auditorium. Of, okay. But to turn the lights on in the auditorium, <laughs> that's an additional fee. That's right. Um, <laughs> New York so we me. would. Um, I always would make friends with the custodians because they would turn the lights on for yeah, us. Yeah. Just sort of don't tell on anybody. The sly. Right yeah. on the sly. And um, because otherwise, otherwise you would have to hire a teacher. Every player has to bring a candle. That's right. <laughs> um, but every, uh, you would have to hire literally a teacher in charge of lighting who would turn on the lights when you started and then he would sit there 
and then he would turn the lights off when you left. <laughs> Getting his free uh, classical so, music. That's right. Again. So, uh, at a, and he would get a very he or she would get a very nice uh, fee. But um, you know, I I would uh, be friendly with the custodians and um, tip them, and they would turn the lights on for us, and it was fine. But the other thing is that uh, there were no chairs. So those were separate too. So we would rent chairs from a party. Um, uh, it's company. ridiculous. It's like you know, putting on an event every two. It weeks. was a, it was yeah. quite an experience organizing this every two weeks. They would uh, ship ship in fifty or seventy chairs, and uh, catering and t- and take them. Well, yeah, <laughs> it was the same company. Like uh, the company was the that we rented the chairs from was a party rental. Right. We could have rented tents and yeah, yeah, and dance floors and all Potted that stuff. Plants. That's right. Yeah. Lights, so uh, disco ball, <laughs> exactly. So uh, that's how we started, and um, it used to take a long time. I would be on the phone literally for two weeks straight, getting everyone s- assembled for one um, for one rehearsal. Well, that's something I really want to ask you about because you know I come from the world of bands. So there's four, there's five, there's six people, whatever. You know, it's hard enough to get those people scheduled i can't imagine you know an orchestra like what when you got into it were you thinking like wow this is going to be my life you know for the next whatever years i'm going to be on the phone and like organizing and scheduling stuff i'm going to be the administrator (laughs) well i originally thought of it if i thought of it at all as a way for me to learn and um to learn my craft as a conductor Mm. which you can only do by getting up in front of people right. and doing it, because you can't really do it at home. You can learn music at home. You can work on, to a certain extent, you can work on your physical technique. But unless you're up in front of people doing it, you really don't know if you can do it. Right. So it's sort of a catch-22. You have to do it to know you can do it, but to know you can do it, you have to do it, if that yes, makes any sense at all. Um, so there's very little, it's very difficult to practice, which is why these workshops are very popular because you could go and take your 300 or $400 for the weekend or whatever it is, probably more now and go somewhere where there are teachers and a group of players who you can get up in front of and you don't have Mm. to do the organizing. And were you conduct so initially when it was the reading orchestra, were you actually conducting it or were yes. you playing? Okay. No, I was You started out as a conductor right, right, right off the bat. And okay. um, sort of before that, um, when I was playing, I still do playing and I was playing then, but I made a conscious decision. I knew that I wanted to conduct and I made the decision to not pursue more playing. Mm. as aggressively okay and I actually worked on Wall Street for about 10 years as an editor and that supported the reading orchestra ah got it yeah you were your own patron yes right so whatever it was for every rehearsal that we did was a couple hundred dollars Mm -hmm. Um, I supported that through my work as on on Wall Street and I guess in a sense very very deliberately that I I I I decided to move into work where I knew I could get make money that would support this. Okay. And then eventually um, I left that and I, I don't have to do that anymore. Right. Yeah. After that first week of the conducting workshop that you took that you had a bad experience with, did you, 
did you immediately put together the orchestra and sort of have on-the-job training, or did you continue to study to be a conductor? Through that period, let's see. Um, when I left school, um, I did some uh, conducting. In fact, I I studied with a, with a, a guy who taught at Columbia and at Juilliard. He was a composer. Um, but he sort of had this sideline side of teaching conducting. Mm -hmm. And he was a fantastic teacher, very eccentric, very um, sort of reclusive. He would... Uh, what was his name? Uh, that was Jacques-Louis Monod. Okay. And um, you couldn't actually get in touch with him. You had to call someone who would call him, and then he would... And his office was in the attic at the music building at Columbia Perfect. University. And you go up there, and we would sit there in this small room, and I would conduct for him. And he was a genius. I, he was a wonderful teacher. Um, and I studied with him for about three years. And during that time, I conducted some musical theater mm. at Columbia. Uh, Columbia and Barnard had a musical theater program, and I did about six or seven shows there, which was great fun and a great experience for a conductor because you're sort of working with um, students right. who don't read music necessarily, who are not professional performers. So to teach them and get them through an entire musical um, was a really good experience, and I enjoyed it. And we would put together a band for that. And uh, so I would rehearse that and then do the shows. So right, that was a right. great experience, and that was um, a really good learning experience. And then during that time, sort of midway to halfway through that is when I... Um, did the uh, started the reading orchestra? Okay, okay. I mean, I guess you're lucky in New York where there's just so many musicians. Absolutely, that, you know, and yeah. so many. That's really why I called. Good musicians. That's why I called. Yeah. For the first reading, I called my friends. Yeah. And they called some friends, and I mean, fortunately, I, many of them have stayed my friends. It uh, could have gone the other way. <laughs> yeah. No uh. kidding. <laughs> Well, I'm wondering, is, is every musician, you know, you hear about, well, every actor really wants to direct, and when you had the experience or, you know, with bad conductors, I'm sure all the other musicians were like, wow, this guy's really terrible, but it made you want to sort of do it, and I'm wondering, does every musician really feel like, well, I could conduct, or is it really a certain personality that, you know, no, I'm actually going to be the leader and, and do it? It's probably a little of both. Um... I always, I always knew that I wanted to conduct. I didn't okay. want to become a conductor because I saw bad conductors. Okay. Um, but it sort of galvanized the idea that I could do it. And um, I thought, well, here I am playing for uh, musicians who I think are not really qualified. And I'm take, I, I basically am doing, working for them in a way as the, you know, the conductor is in yeah. charge of the orchestra. The boss. And I thought, well, if there, if there's going to be one jerk who's running this thing, it might as well be me. I'm going to be that jerk. <laughs> right. So, um, that's, that's, that helped me a little bit to move forward that, that idea. It's kind of, you know, I say that jokingly, but it's not entirely untrue. Um, but I always knew that I was interested in conducting and I certainly studied hard and, and with many people. And um, 
you know, try and learn as much as possible all the time, no matter the experience. Yeah. But I think musicians in general, there's always a sort of um, wariness between an orchestra and the conductor. And that's always, I think that's always there. I think players always will always feel that they know better than the conductor. And, and that may be true. Um, it may not be true. It may be true. It depends. I think, though, um, players appreciate a conductor who is there and helps them. Right, right. Um, not someone that gets in their way. Mm-hmm. So players, I think, good players, players who are um, conscientious about what they're doing and who are really interested in the music part of making music are um, appreciative of a conductor as the way uh, who can help them, the way they're appreciative of other players who play well with them. Sure, yeah. And, you know, being good colleagues is is a really important part of of any work. Definitely, um, yeah. And music, I think music, in especially because what you're doing is essentially nonverbal. It's essentially... Um, not many people know how it works right right and you know it's uh, it's not a secret language but it's a it's a way of communicating that's very different than than any other communication it's certainly a shared learned language that, exactly you know you have to study and so i think once you do have it then you you can communicate you know in the in that way yes well i it's funny because it, i had a list of questions and then on the way the train over here i wrote at the bottom orchestra horror stories <laughs> i'm just wondering has there ever really been a point either as a player or as a conductor where something had really just gone off the rails where you're like wow i i have to stop this or or oh sure oh okay yeah no that let's hear about that that happens <laughs> um but uh they're always a surprise uh-huh and they're always um not intended Sure. Yeah. Um, there, in my, I think in my career, I've stopped a performance three times. Really? Okay. Yeah. What has to but happen? It, like, how bad okay, does it have to be? First of all, the problem has to happen very close to the beginning. Right. Okay. And it has to be such a um, a terrible <laughs> event. <laughs> That, <laughs> that you have to stop. Yeah. Um, certainly, in performances, people can miss things, miss notes, mm -hmm. but you go, th you go on. And I mean, imperfection is what yeah. we are. We're not right. perfect, and um, you strive to be as perfect as possible, but it, that's never going to happen. Um, so, uh, on one occasion, we were playing a piece by uh, Stravinsky, so a 20th century piece based on a 15th century piece. Um, and there was just something, something was off. Uh-huh. It happened very close to the beginning. And I certainly thought to myself, oh, that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if this is going to resolve itself, fix itself. Yeah. And then it didn't, it just sort of got worse. And we just, there was a downward spiral Yeah, <laughs> that happened. And, um, so I just stopped, you know, I just waved everyone quiet and. I believe I may have turned to the audience and said something like, we're going to start again. Uh-huh. And, and I, we did. And yeah. 
not a big deal. I, I think you really have to. You know, it's better to do that than just have it completely fall apart. You know? Right, because, as I say, when it's circling the drain, yeah, there's no way it's ever coming back. Right, right. You know, a little something here, a little something there is okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not okay, but it's not going to ruin everything. But, you know, you're... You're there to perform a piece. You're there to present a piece to an audience. And if everyone is just hanging on and, and playing, just playing whatever, that's not the piece. And <laughs> no, you sort of owe no. it to the audience to absolutely to play the piece as best you can. And, yeah. And it, uh, I mean, I certainly found that um, audiences don't care. Some players really get annoyed by it. If you start over. It. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, but I know. But I don't know why. I, I mean, as a player, I wouldn't wouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah, I mean, I think as an audience member, well, especially in classical, where people are so, a lot of people are very educated about it, you know, and they know if something is wrong, um, especially if it's something big like that. So. Well, this I piece, think, I don't think anyone would have known. Oh, really? Oh. Because it's a piece that I would guarantee ninety nine percent of the audience had never heard before. Mm, okay. So. Um, they could certainly chalk it up to being well. It's a that's a late, a yeah. late, a late piece by Stravinsky. Right. It's based on sort of 15th century uh, magicals, but it's Stravinsky. Um, but that's not wasn't the case at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny in doing research. I was reading an interview with is it Issa or Esapeka Salonen? Esapeka Salonen. Salonen, and and he said. His quote was, uh, the composer is the chef, the conductor is just the waiter. Maybe I'm the head waiter, but my job is still to get the food to the table intact and on time. <laughs> I just thought that was an interesting way to think it's about it. It's very true. I mean, as performers, as musicians who are playing music that has been written already, mm -hmm. you are there. Uh, this sounds very pretentious. However, it's true. You're there to serve the composer. Right. You're there to present the composer's vision. You're certainly there to do it in a way that uh, allows you to express you what you feel about the piece and how you feel the composer meant this piece to happen. But primarily, you're there to represent the composer, and the players are too. Um, you're not there to create something that is antithetical to what the composer is right. creating. Um, and that's a fine line to walk. Because within any given piece, within any piece that's very familiar, any a Beethoven symphony or mm -hmm. a Mozart symphony or something like that, one would think that everything that could be done with a piece within the realm of good taste and right, correct, right. Um, whatever the correct in quotes, correct way of performing as has been done, but it certainly hasn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are infinite possibilities to do, to uh, to perform a piece, which is, you know, why we love doing it. But I think you're not quite a curator in a museum right. because the, that work of art exists and you don't do anything to it except light it. Right. Put a caption on it. This is and, something that's meant to be lived. Right. It has to be. That's right. And and I think um, that Salonen's point is well taken. But the, the performer is certainly important. Otherwise, the piece wouldn't exist oh, yeah. in real time. It would exist on paper or 
in recording. Um, so he also said that one of his pieces of advice to other conductors was find a way to stay in shape because your arms are. <laughs> it's a physical thing. Do you have it any? It is absolutely physical, and yeah, I uh, when I teach um, because my teachers give, gave it to me. I have exercises that um, uh, okay. we do that so that you are free to uh, physically free. So there's no tension in your arms. So there are a lot of exercises we do with our wrists and our elbows and okay. shoulders and back, and certainly general physical. Um, conditioning is is good for everything. Um, I mean, I'd be lying to you if I said I was a prime physical specimen. But um, what I've worked on over the years is sort of getting rid of tension in my yeah, physical yeah. being so that when I'm in front of a group, all that uh, I don't think about me. And that's, that's certainly very um, common with young conductors who lack experience. Um, for instance, in a workshop, you'll see um, young conductors. The teacher will come up and tell them something. They'll whisper something in their ear, and they'll they'll try to assimilate it right away. And you know, you can see their brain working. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back a little bit. Um, did you come from a musical family? How, how did you decide the oboe? Did you hear an orchestra, and you're like, that guy is rocking that oboe? Or yeah, actually, <laughs> uh, very close. Um, my family, not particularly musical. My mm -hmm. uh, my parents um, don't play instruments. You're from New York. I'm from okay. Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. And um, but there was music in the house. There was some. My my parents had classical LPs mm -hmm. and and jazz and um, that stuff too. And in fact, I have most of those LPs now. Oh, great. Um, so I was aware of it, and but I was very lucky because the New York public school system at that time had strong music programs in the schools. So when I was in third or fourth grade, I was given an instrument. But at school? At school. Um, one class, two of the classes on a grade had this music. So one was band, mm -hmm. wind instruments and brass instruments, and one was orchestra, and they played string instruments. And I was in the band class, and I played, they gave me the clarinet. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I wanted to play. I think I wanted to play the trumpet. Sure. But, um, the loudest. <laughs> exactly. But uh, they gave me the clarinet, and I played the clarinet, and um, with no thought of doing anything with it. How old were you? Uh, fourth grade. That's okay. um, eight. Eight or nine. Yeah. Eight, yeah. And um, so I played fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, and, and then in junior high school. I played a little bit in the band, but uh, the band used to meet before school started, and that was way too early for me. Uh, yeah. That was just blazingly yeah. early. So um, I, I played uh, through junior high school, not in school, but then in high school, um, I played in the band because it was during a regularly scheduled um, period, period yeah. of class. Uh -huh. Yeah, so in the middle of the day, and that was great. And I was really lucky there because... The teachers, the music teachers in my high school were terrific. Um, great musicians. They were great performing musicians who were also teaching. Um, and uh, one of them, my, uh, my, the band teacher there, I'm, I'm still friendly with. And uh, he, he didn't get me started playing the oboe. He was an oboist. Okay. And his wife played in the city opera 
flute. And I was playing clarinet in the band, and I saw all these really good clarinet players who were in front of me playing first clarinet, and I was sitting in the back of the section. So I volunteered to play bass clarinet, because only one person does that. And E-flat clarinet, which uh, only one. Right. And and I I hung around in the music department, and um, there was an instrument on the shelf that I opened the case... I opened the case for this instrument, and I didn't know what it was. And I asked my teacher what it was. He said, oh, it's an oboe. And I'm like, what's that? And he said, well, um, never mind, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> it's, he said, it's a wind instrument. I, okay, fine. And then we had a, uh, a class trip to hear the New York Philharmonic. Oh, okay. And I, we were all in one row, and they, there was a program where they combined the New York Philharmonic and members of the... Um, all city high school orchestra. Oh, interesting. Which they they used to do. Um, so students were playing alongside these great professional players, and I wound up actually sitting next to my teacher, who was an oboist. I don't think I knew that at that time, maybe. And some of the pieces that they played had these uh, big oboe solos. Oh, all right. And every time there was one, he would elbow me. You go, that's an oboe. That's what the oboe is, <laughs> and um, that's classic. <laughs> yeah, and um, the oboe of all the instruments in the orchestra, except for the concert master, except for the first violin, mm-hmm. has more solos than any other instrument. It's just it's used more. Okay, it's used more for solos than just about any instrument. More than the flute. I've heard this. I haven't actually done the research. Right, right. But this is. Um, I've heard this from several places. And I it's believe like the, it's lead, a, the lead guitar of the yeah or, yeah you know, you know when violin. when a composer wants a melody <laughs> yeah. played you know beautiful melody often the oboe plays yeah. it okay so um, I fell in love with the sound of the instrument and had you been taking private lessons or was all of this just I took, in class I took some private lessons clarinet lessons in junior high school okay but not much um, and then everything was in class yeah it's amazing I had friends obviously. My high school buddies played, mm-hmm. and we hung out, and we were interested in music and sort of hung around the chorus, and we had one of the teachers, the chorus teacher, gave us sort of some elementary theory, music theory classes, informally. Um, but I, I really fell in love with the sound of the oboe, which I, I still am in love with the sound of the oboe. And um, I asked him if I could play it. Mm-hmm. I, maybe it was after that that I came across the instrument in the, cl- in the instrument closet. And I said, I want to play the oboe. He said, no, you don't. It's too hard. Too hard, yeah. Which only made me want to play more. <laughs> and I said, well, you could teach me. And he said, no, I, I, I'm not going to teach you. I, Why? He said, well, you live in Brooklyn. I live in Queens. If you need, when you study oboe for the first, for the beginning of your studies in oboe, you need a teacher who lives close by because... The oboe has these very delicate reeds, yeah, yeah, and they have to be made. And if you break one, they're not going to see me until. So you need someone nearby, and I was just really determined. I said, "Okay, so do you know anyone near me?" So he did. It was another high school teacher um, in Brooklyn. Oh, great! Who lived near me, so I I, I studied with him, and um, they so were fun. they were friends. It's all about, all about the reeds. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, well, I think, you know, looking back, I certainly understand because 
I would not want to have to teach oboe to a beginning oboist. <laughs> right. I mean, right. I have, uh-huh. but it's very hard because it's one of the most difficult instruments to get a sound out of. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the scale, you know, the um, the curve is really steep. It's a really steep curve to get to a place where the sound is acceptable for anyone to hear. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a So, for example, triangle. if you yeah. start playing the flute, the sound that you make on the flute, it's okay. Yeah. It'll get better You can make gradually. one note and it sounds like right. a flute. Yeah. The oboe, the first noises you make on an oboe are horrendous. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. So it takes a while before it's acceptable for anyone outside. You must have been pretty determined then. I mean, I was. You know. I was very determined yeah. for some reason. I just really loved the sound, and I really wanted to, to learn to play. So I would um, go to my lessons, and then I would come back to school, to high school. And I guess I started playing oboe as a junior. But I certainly couldn't play well enough to play in a band until I was a senior. Okay. Because so, it takes a while. And what? So you're still using the instruments from the school. I, right. I'm sure good oboes are not cheap. No, and this was definitely not a good oboe. <laughs> but um, but when I was a senior, graduating, I my parents, um, we got together and we bought a, a, a decent instrument. Okay. And I remember it cost about six hundred dollars. Yeah. And um, but I would go to my t- one of the. This is also I was very lucky because my teacher in high school would um, after my lessons, he would say, how's your lesson? How's the lesson? How's the lesson? So I almost had two teachers. Right, right, right. And he would say, my my private teacher, his name was Ronnie. He says, Ronnie, teaching how to make reads yet? I said, no. He said, tell him he's got to do that now. To make reads? To make reads. Okay. Um, it's a whole process. You, It's very sort of dull to anyone who's not an oboist. But you... Sure. you Take um, strips of essentially bamboo. Mm-hmm. You cut them. You fold them over a metal tube. You take thread. You tie it onto the tube. Then you scrape down the reed. Mm-hmm. An oboe has two reeds. They that vibrate opposite each other. Right. Okay. That's why it's called a double reed. Clarinet has one reed. Right. I played saxophone. Right. Like that's single. That's so, one yeah, reed. Yeah. And the oboe reed is about half the width of that or a right. third the width of that and there are two of them. It's the end of a little tube. Right? right. Yeah. So it's a whole process. It's a whole mechanical process. And is it important to make them yourself rather than buy them? Um, it is if you're going to play professionally. Seriously? Okay. Yeah. So, um, but he would always say, is he making, you learn how to make reads? He said, no, tell him. Tell him to make. So, um, I would go back to my lesson and I'd say, Harold says, I have to make reads. He said, tell Harold to stop bugging me. <laughs> so cool. after a couple of months, he said, okay. So he wrote a list for me, and I went to a music store on 46th Street, and you know, the music, where the, all the music stores used to be. They're sadly gone. And you know, I bought these four things. I bought the thread and a uh-huh. wooden block and a knife to scrape the reeds with. And he said, and don't buy anything else. <laughs> I'm and, sure because when you're a kid and you walk into a music store, well, the oh. the guy, the guys who worked in the store, these old guys who were retired players uh-huh. playing on Broadway, and I think he tried to sell me the whole store. Yeah, yeah. And but um, but you, what it did, it left me in really good stead because a lot of 
oboists don't learn the physical practice of making reeds until later, like in college. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they are less um, comfortable doing it. So I started in high school. I'm very comfortable with that mechanical yeah. part. And that's always been really good to me. So there's, you know, it becomes sort of a, a mysterious process of making great reads when you're in college and your teacher is the, you know, principal at the Philharmonic. And they do it and they do something to your read and it's, oh, it's magic. But, yeah. you know, if you start earlier, the nuts and bolts are just right, right. nuts and bolts and it's less mystical and you sort of have that facility. You know, it's like learning to ski as a young kid. You know, it's natural. Yeah. Yeah. You learn to ice skate, or yeah. you do that young, and then um, it just, it's not hard. Yeah, and you always absolutely. have it. Yeah, um, you know, adults who learn to ski or ice skate, it's very tricky. You know, because right. they're just not used to. No, they that say feeling. it's the same with languages. Exactly, you, know, if you learn them when when you're younger. Well, exactly. it sounds like your teacher uh, Harold had some. Uh, he must have seen something in you enough talent or dedication that you know he's like. Well, if you're going to be taking oboe from this guy, he better be doing it right. <laughs> well, I, I th that's uh, that's right. I think that's right. And he certainly tried to discourage me from being a musician. Mm -hmm. Actively discouraged me. But I knew I wanted to do it. And I, I, I knew that um, I wanted to go to music school for college and study. And I did. And I, you know, I went to Brooklyn College, which had, at that time, still does, but at that time, an amazing music department. Just mm -hmm. a wonderful music department with great teachers, I mean, internationally known teachers. Um, and I had, a, I really couldn't have been in a better place to learn what I needed because I was, compared to kids who go to Juilliard and the big conservatories, I was probably a little bit behind. And I would have not gotten into those places probably. Mm -hmm. um, but I would have been behind in sort of, their preparation started, their formal preparation was more advanced than mine was sure, at yeah. that age. But I was able to grow at college at my own speed, which was fast. I, I mean, I, I think it was fast, and I, certainly as a grad student there. Um, I, I mean, I think I made up for it because I, you know, when I got out, I was, I was certainly playing with the, those same people. Right, right. Well, how was your family supportive of this? Or they're like, "What you're um, gonna do? What?" Yes, they. Yes, my my family was very supportive of okay. it. Okay. I mean, I think it broke. It, well, I wouldn't say it broke my parents' heart, but when I was getting out of high school, sort of unasked for, I got a letter accepting me into a program that was part of the City University of New York. That was a seven-year bachelor's medical school program. <laughs> Like who applied for this? I did not apply for it. It was <laughs> Your I mean I had I, right. I, yeah. I was a good student. I had good marks. Yeah. I had a New York State Region scholarship. Was not a big money, but it was a very um, nice thing. And then I got this letter saying, if you want to do this, you can. I, I, no, I'm not. And I think yeah. my parents, because oh. everyone a little bit, and my grandparents probably even more so. But yeah, you know they they wanted. I think they wanted me to be happy. I think they still do. And I was so committed to doing this. So there wasn't, there was no question. I knew from, you know, from the time I was 14 or 15, what I needed, what I wanted to do, what I needed to do. Right. That's amazing. And everything else has been in support of that or aid of that or um, to help with that. And I've had a lot of other 
jobs, not musical jobs, just to support myself. I mean, it's really, it's remarkable. It's such a testament to the value of funding for the arts in public school. That, Absolutely. You, know, you can get, you almost got all of your classical education, you know, through, <laughs> through a public school. It, it's just, uh, I got it's all of it through incredible. a public school because, except for my private yeah, instrument like, lessons. Right. But Brooklyn College was the city university. Right. It was fantastic. Too. I mean, I'm a product, for better or worse, but a product of the public school system of this New York City. Is it still that time, way here? Um, I don't know about in elementary through high school. Mm-hmm. I think there are some programs in certain places, but it's not certainly not what it was. Yeah. Um, the uh, City University, Queens College, and Brooklyn College have terrific music programs. Um, I've taught, I taught at Brooklyn College a little bit, and I taught at the, um, the City University, City College, uh, sorry, City College up on 138th, and uh, I did the orchestra there. I conducted the orchestra there for a couple of years. And every, every the, all the colleges have a music program to a greater or lesser extent. Um, but I think where I was at the time was a real boom in the music department because we had a very strong chairman of the department, very strong, um, and she got funding for the department and brought in great teachers. And That's she was great. a tough, tough person yeah. in many ways. But she recognized that um, that I did want to conduct, and she gave me lessons, private lessons. I didn't pay for them. We just met informally, and um, she she was my uh, my first teacher of that. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the audition process from maybe both sides, because mm-hmm. I, I, you know, as as a performer, I would I would assume that you know there are auditions that you have to do, and now as the director of the orchestra, there's probably a lot of weighing of applicants, and you know. Mm-hmm you're the one who has to give them the bad news and that sort of thing. Well, um, I do a lot of opera, and I, I work with, um, I've been working with this company here in New York, and um, so y- the, the short answer is yes, um, I've certainly taken a lot of auditions in my life, mm-hmm. and I've all given auditions. So I've been on the both sides of the table. Right, right. Um, and... I'd certainly rather be on the giving side than the taking <laughs> side. <laughs> yeah, all, in yeah. all honesty, but um, um, <laughs> I think everyone. Would but but certainly, uh, I I've certainly been at auditions and played at auditions or app applied places uh-huh. where the people on the other side have been just clearly uninterested. Yeah, and it's a terrible thing, and I try never to do that. You're like, why am I even here? Right? Why, why didn't you just tell and, me? And um, having been on. The, uh, that's that side what I f- have discovered is that um, auditions are more about the people who are listening to the applicants than it is about the applicants mm. in many ways mm-hmm. um, it depends on so, think it depends on so much like what they've had for dinner or lunch <laughs> or what they view as the proper sound of an instrument or yeah. what they view as the proper sound of a type of voice right. Um, you know, and certainly in many instances, I, I think like any job interview, someone who's doing the interview has preset notions, certain prejudices about what they think 
this position needs. And um, I certainly try not to do that when I audition people. Um, I think it mostly it mostly happens in opera auditions where you hear many different types of voices singing for a similar role. And I've certainly been on auditions where someone will say, well, I, I, this, this voice is too heavy for this part or this voice is too light for this part. And honestly, I don't care about that. I'm interested in whether they, they're convincing, mm-hmm. whether they can, they can actually sing the part and make it convincing in character. Right, right. Um, it's different for instrumentalists. I mean, you want to hear a certain level of expertise, but also you want to know that the person will be a good colleague. You don't, obviously, that's mm-hmm. intangible. You don't know that until you're in the situation. And a certain level of experience. You want to know that people have a certain level of experience playing in an orchestra. Um, I mean, it's interesting that you ask because New York Repertory Orchestra does not audition people. Mm. Um, What we do is, because it's an an all-volunteer group, and these people are not, by and large, professional musicians, I don't subject them to a professional type of audition. Right, 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 right. What I usually do is when people will email or get in touch about joining the orchestra, I ask them about their background and um, their experience and other groups they've played in and what other musics they've played, major pieces, maybe solo pieces. I have to imagine it's got to be a lot easier now where it's like, well, yeah, this YouTube clip, you know, just send me the links or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I don't... If they have, you know, If they do, I don't... I really don't ask for that. Oh, Um, okay. Because what we do do is we... You can tell a lot about someone's level of experience by the way they talk about their experience. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that that's a, a guarantee of their ability to play. But what we do is we invite prospective players in to sit in and play in a couple of rehearsals. Oh, okay. And they see how it goes, mm-hmm. and we see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And then we may ask them to play some of the music that we've rehearsed for myself and the section leader. That happens rarely, but it does happen. Usually... If we play very challenging music, I have to say, um, often the process is self-selecting. People right. will know that they're, it, like, I'm not they're a, above yeah. that. This is above their yeah. heads, and they're, they're struggling, and they um, they shouldn't do it. Or they'll say, you know, I need to get my chops in shape, and I'll come back. Yeah, and, yeah. and we're you know that's fine, mm-hmm. um, but it's low pressure, and you know I certainly don't need to hear people play a concerto right <laughs> um because it really wouldn't tell me much yeah um and um but certainly there are other groups that do similar groups that do audition and i've been on those and that's fine i mean it's whatever works for an organization sure and i have to say also if i was starting a group again i don't know that i would do the same process well I might, how would you change it I, there oh, might be auditions, know. there might not be auditions. Okay. You know, there, it depends. Yeah. It well, depends. Well, I mean, initially when you were starting it, you were just, it was a reading orchestra. And anyway. I knew everybody was playing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, what about, so some of the people that, who, who do volunteer for you, you know, when we talked, you were saying, well, they could be doctors or lawyers mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe they used to be professionals. Is it just really a huge range of people or is there sort of like a common type of, you know, person? It's a range uh, geographical, mm. um, age-wise, um, I'm not the oldest person in the group, and I'm certainly not the youngest. Um, 
but I think um, people's experience is similar. Mm-hmm. Their playing experience is similar. But the backgrounds, we have people from all over the country and all over the world. I mean, we have people from, um, we have research scientists who are here on fellowships for a year or two. Um, and we have uh, native New Yorkers and we have people who come to New York to work create their careers here. Mm-hmm. I think that's very common. Um, I mean, a sort of a common profile would be someone who has, for example, played the violin. They grew up in Illinois. Right. You know, maybe in Chicago, maybe outside, in a small town. And they studied, as I did, in elementary school, junior high school, high school. They may have gone to a summer music camp. They may have played in the all-county or all-city orchestra. Mm-hmm. Did shows in college, played in the orchestra in college, played chamber music on their own with their friends, and then come to New York to have their career, you know, after their after college, mm-hmm. you know, uh, out of law school or they're working in a bank or they're teaching or they're working for a nonprofit here in New York. Uh huh. But they still want. And to... they still want to play. Yeah. And yeah. they they look around and they see who the groups are and the, you know some of our players play in more than one group. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very common thread uh, the experience that people have is, is similar uh, I recently got um, contacted by someone who had a son who, by someone whose son who's 13 who wanted to play um, and as good as the kid might be I think their level of experience playing in an orchestra would not be ready. They wouldn't be ready yet because the just the experience of sitting in an ensemble for years and playing repertoire and uh, it's a it's a different thing rather than just being able to play well. Sure. It's a whole different thing. I mean, sure. Um, you know, there are many soloists I've heard. You know, the, the story of the very famous violin soloist years back, who after playing the concerto with the orchestra went and sat in the back of the violin section, and he said he got lost immediately. <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea what, was, what he was doing. He, played, right. I mean, he was this, this amazing soloist who was world yeah. famous, yeah. and it's a different skill. No, absolutely. It's a different, uh, different yeah. thing to be able to do. Well, what... Uh, I mean, in the classical world, you know, because uh, the notion of the, the podcast is to talk about the meaning of success and, you know, what it means and do we care and... I mean, as a classical musician, like, what do you think, like, what is success? So, like, now I've made it, or or, or is that even a thing? Um, I think it's probably different for everybody. Mm-hmm. What, success for, let me think about our players who are volunteers. Right. Who are amateur players in the best sense, you know, amateur meaning, you know, they love it, what they're doing. Um, some of our players are professional who play professionally, mm-hmm. um, but I, most are not in the sense of getting paid for what they do. They're wonderful players, right. and certainly many of them could play. Um, but I think success for them is preparing something well and performing it well and having friends and family come and hear them. Yeah. Um, uh, for me, success is certainly... There are many different kinds of success one is certainly having a life in music mm-hmm. um, and doing that but um, specifically playing having a good performance 
preparing well, learning the music well, and knowing that um, after we play something, we didn't just get through it. Right. We actually were musical and had something to say. Yeah. And certainly the level of playing that's different than the New York Philharmonic or the Berlin Philharmonic, you know, one of the great orchestras in the world, where there are different levels of musical communication. So success for larger, you know, professional organizations is to certainly bring a greater level of perfection to things. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that scale of, you know, any success can be anywhere on the scale. Yeah. You know, it depends on where you start and where you go and where you wind up in a performance. And, you know, hopefully you do end up in a place better, higher or whatever, however you measure that, that's better than where you started. Right. Um, And I think, I guess the older I get, that's more important Mm -hmm. to me is, is really doing the music well and presenting it well. Um, what would you say for you has been the biggest challenge uh, as either a musician or, or in your career in music? Well, from the orchestra point of view, one of the challenges that I, we set for the orchestra, I, I sort of this sort of happened on its own and now we're stuck with it, is that... Um, <laughs> We never repeat any music. Ah, okay. We've never repeated a piece of music in 15 years, except twice. But those were um, with soloists, and solo repertoire is a little more limited. Right. And one of them was a really great opportunity from uh, two principal players at the New York Philharmonic who wanted to do a piece with us. Oh, great. So, of course, we said yes. Uh-huh. But generally speaking, we don't repeat anything. So we've, in, the, what is it, 15 years since we started doing a concert series in 2000. So we've performed about 300 or more pieces, individual pieces. So certainly that's a challenge for me to learn music. I mean, I have known some of it and done some of it elsewhere, Um, but we're always doing new things and we're always doing music that the orchestra doesn't know at all. And that, but that was your decision too, right? Well, my decision initially was to do music that was less familiar. Right. But it's sort of grown into um, music that that we've never done before as a group. Um, all great music. There's, I don't think there's anything that we've done that's been sort of second rate. But it's stuff that's not done. And yeah. we sort of have a freedom to do that because um, our budget is not enormous mm-hmm. and we're not looking for a million dollar grants to keep us going so we can do that and I think our audience over the years has come to trust us that we'll present something that they may not know but they'll probably like or they'll like something on the program and we do some we do some music that certainly people know we've certainly gone through the cycle of of all the Beethoven symphonies and the Brahms and and Sibelius and all this type of thing but a lot of our music is lesser known um, sadly lesser known because it's great stuff mm-hmm. and a lot of it is 20th century music so Shostakovich and Prokofiev and Martineau and Janacek and Stravinsky and things like that that aren't played a lot and a lot of the similar groups uh, the volunteer orchestras in New York um, I think tend to do by and large more standard works mm-hmm. um, well they so, have to worry about paying 
customers and what they want to hear and you know well I you know they're they're similar to us um, in many ways their budgets are not huge no. I mean they may be um, but I it's just the the um, the culture of the organization mm-hmm. that you know some organizations like ours are have large boards and everyone has a voice and some are smaller and have a fewer um, a smaller governing body. Well, I was going to ask you, are you still the one making all those phone calls and organizing everything? <laughs> um, <laughs> day in and day out. The organization part? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but uh, it's gotten much easier over the years and our section players mm-hmm. um, really help. Um, often, um, uh, if, some, if we need an extra player in a section, the section will take care of it. Right. Which okay. is great. And yeah. I trust them and, yeah. you know, they're going to bring someone good in. And if they have a problem, they'll talk to me. And if I have questions, you know, it's a, it's fluid, but it's much easier. I'm not doing all of that. And certainly we have longevity of players who are, who are here. And I know that I don't have to recreate an orchestra every, for every concert. And that's also great because of the music making. We all know each other well, and we sort of know what's expected uh, in the way we rehearse and perform. Have you been performing at the same, the Church of uh, St. Mary? Uh, we perform now at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Times Square, but we didn't originally. We performed at a church for the first 10 years from 2000 to 2009, I guess, 2010. We performed at a smaller church um, near Lincoln Center, which was the Good Shepherd Church. Okay. Because um, I was going to ask about the challenges of that, and in a way, churches are the perfect sort of acoustic thing, but yeah, maybe not yes for an orchestra. No. <laughs> yes and no. Well, the church where we used to perform was much smaller, mm-hmm. and I think we could maybe get 250 audience members in it. Okay. Very nice acoustic, um, but the but it was small, and the orchestra got too large, right? And the audience got too large. We would have people sitting on the floor, right? We'd have people standing in the aisles and we would have people sitting sort of behind the players, which was very mm-hmm. sort of odd. Oh, it was fun. Um, but uh, we just outgrew it. And then we discovered the church of St. Mary's. We did one concert there and then the music director who was there at the time invited us to move there, which was perfect because I was going to ask him if we could move there. And, um, so we've been there since, uh, for the last six years or so. And where do some of the bigger instruments come from? Because it, it's not like, I guess if you play timpani, do you own a set of timpani that you, you roll no, in with you? Um, no. You may, but it's um, generally our percussion instruments. Well, I'll go back. Everyone, every wind player, brass player, right. string player brings their own instrument, yeah, certainly. Yeah. But for percussion, and a lot of the stuff we do has lots of percussion. Mm-hmm. Like the concert we're doing this week has timpani, there's always timpani, mm-hmm. um, bass drum, snare drum, xylophone, glockenspiel, um, cymbals, uh, whip. Nice. Yeah. Um, so we rent that stuff. That's okay. one, actually, that's one of our large expenses. If yeah, I was wondering if I if I had storage space, if the orchestra had storage space somewhere, it would yeah. probably be economically feasible to buy some basic things. Yeah, but we can't store it, so I 
sadly. Yeah. We, yeah. You know, we rent, but that's part of our expense. And we understand that. So, but everything else, uh, if we need a piano, um, the church doesn't have a piano. So if we have a piano soloist, we'll usually Steinway, for example, or Yamaha will donate the piano because we'll have the performer will be a, an artist, a Yamaha or Steinway artist. Oh, yeah. But we pay for the move, which is not mm-hmm, cheap. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's what we raise money for is to pay for the space and the rental of the music itself, yeah. which comes from the publishers and the instrumental rental. And, um, and that, you know, we try and keep our costs as little as possible so we can pay for the important things like the music. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that um, it sounds like now you're such a well-known entity, the orchestra, that is there really much promotion you have to do or is it just people know and they'll, they'll show up? No, there there is promotion. Um, I don't know how well-known we are. We're well-known among people who know us. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, every concert, it's always... I'm always interested to see how many people will be there. Uh-huh. I mean, we generally fill up the space, which is five or six hundred. Yeah. So like four hundred, but um, it's always it's always media. It's always yeah. Tweeting, but it's always yeah. nerve wracking. We're tweeting, we're Facebook and events, and mm-hmm. we have a a mailing that goes out. You know, a physical mailing through the post, and we have an email mailing that goes out, sort of a um, formatted um, announcement and. I certainly tell everyone in the orchestra they they know this very well. Probably tired of hearing me say it. We're responsible for our own audience. If there's if we don't have a good audience, it's our fault. Mm-hmm. Because the days of the newspapers and magazines in New York covering every event or having an announcement for every event don't exist. It no, used to be the New York no. Times on every week would have a listing of every single classical music, ballet, whatever, mm-hmm. every performing arts event. And you would just send it to them, and they would put it in, and that does not happen anymore. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, not even a min, a very, a very small amount of that happens anymore. And it's, it's always the usual suspects it, that get announced. Uh, it'll be the Philharmonic the Phil, and yeah. the Met, mm-hmm. and um, the ballet, and all the other groups. You know, we're we're all struggling for um, publicity. Yeah. Um, and you have to do it yourself now. I mean, it's, we it's do. the same yeah, in, exactly. in music, all, all music. You know, it's hit or miss whether Time Out New York is going to mention us. Uh-huh. You never know. Yeah. You know, we get stuff out to them in time, and you don't know until the week before when it comes out. Yeah, you see, actually oh, we're in here. Oh, we're not in here. Oh, yeah. they got the address wrong. Um, so it's always a struggle, and I, I think that's always going to be the case. So... I think we have a core audience, but that can change, you know, if the weather's bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. People are less likely to come out. And mm-hmm. Times Square is, I mean, we're, we love Times Square in a way, and we hate Times Square in a way that every New Yorker does. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's exciting, and it's, there are people going by, and we have, I think we, people walk in off the street when they see, mm-hmm. We have a concert. We have put big posters outside, and I think people walk in to yeah. a certain extent. But um, it's tough. It's tough for everybody here in New York. That's not. I think it's tough for the New York Philharmonic, honestly, but in a different way. Yeah. But certainly for all the community orchestras, it'll always it'll always be a struggle. 
Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. What do you see as the state of classical music in general, both you know here in New York and in the U.S. and then maybe in the world? Because I know you you've been in Italy and Mexico and you know Bulgaria, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like classical music is alive and well, at least here in New York City? I think there are two, almost two or more sides to the question, because I think there are always people who love it. Mm-hmm. There will always be people who love it and who play. There are, in Manhattan, at least seven volunteer orchestras of large size. So certainly there are people who love doing it and love playing it and want to play it. And I think that'll never change. And I think there are musicians, young musicians who can't uh, conceive of doing anything else with their lives. And that'll always be the case. Um, The question is certainly where will there be opportunities for them when they get older and you know, are not living at home and going to school and studying, um, you know, what will happen to the big orchestras? And that's all a question of funding. Yeah. Um, at this point, you know, even some of the great orchestras in the country ha- are having, even now, you know, issues, contract talks, and um, the administrations of the groups want to cut the orchestras and and cut hours and cut players and all that kind of stuff. And you know, I think there was certainly a boom, an orchestra boom, classical music boom, after World War II, because yeah. there were a lot of, um, well, the soldiers came out of the war. GI Bill could say whatever they wanted to. There a lot of that money got pumped into universities, music departments. People wanted to be musicologists and theorists and composers because they could do whatever they wanted. So those departments grew and grew, and then colleges became very um, big centers of classical music. And that, that sort of may have um, not been a great thing for music in general because the sort of academic quality of that sort of, you can, I can see that it may have bypassed the general public. Right, right. And, and classical music has never been the popular music of the United States, for example. But there was certainly awareness of it and respect for it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly remember growing up and seeing, you know, great classical musicians on talk shows and in uh, and and on a variety shows on television. You know, uh, like on Ed Sullivan or something. You'd you'd have um, you know Isaac Stern or Pavarotti or somebody like that, and it was clear, you know, this was a thing that people understood was there. Um, and I think that's less so now. Yeah. I think there's less, and I, uh, but I think the reason is because primarily um, of edu- the lack of education in the country. Because every organization, every performing arts organization wants to figure out how to get relevant for the young, younger audiences out there. Yeah. And if they're not learning it at school or even hearing it, and from even, their parents. even programs that just make um, music that acquaint students with music is not enough. I, I've always thought this, that the only way to create audiences for classical music is to put instruments in the hands of younger, sure, uh, of young kids, so yeah. that they know what it is and yeah. they appreciate what's involved in 
playing an instrument mm-hmm. and there's a sort of background and that's it's different in Europe where um, classical music is really more part of the fabric of society yeah, still. just because of the historical yeah. aspect of location and certainly in parts of Asia uh, Japan and China where it's it's very socially um, important mm-hmm. for some reason um, I mean it's also people love it but there's, I think, more social respect is given to it. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm guessing about that because I don't have first-hand experience. But I think, at least here in the U.S., that um, the idea that performing arts organizations get government money, we're at a period in history where that rubs many people the wrong way. Well, I think it's also really unfortunate. American is sort of, America, and I, I'm sure I'm generalizing, is can be seen as sort of anti-intellectual and anything that smacks of you know being too smart. Or, or I think so. I think that's the case. Certainly recently. Yeah. And um, you know, certainly in the last what twenty or thirty years, the idea that everything should be run as a, on a free market mm-hmm. basis, um, you know, government should be run like a business. Um, if a performing arts organization can't make money, they don't deserve to be in right. business. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, business in quotes. But that's not the case. I mean, government, for me, anyway, is not a business, but that's a different question. But yeah, performing have- arts organizations have always needed um, patrons. Yeah. Because even um, even at a time when, when uh, musicians, for example, were not working 52 weeks a year like they do now. You know, not long ago, the members of the great orchestras had to get summer jobs because they didn't have a contract for a full year. Right. And they weren't paid a lot. And um, But still, they're, they're still needed um, support from people or government to help them run. And I think in Europe, they understand that a little better because it's always been that way, although it's changing there too. Um, and I think that's... That's a problem. I don't know what the answer is, but it's definitely a problem. And, um, you know, there are certainly many orchestras, for example, I mean, that's a field I, I know better, orchestras and opera companies, where it's the administration that dictates artistic policy, and I yeah. think that's a bad thing, yeah. by and large. Um, to be independent, to dictate artistic policy independent of the artistic people who are there um so you wind up with an or- organizations who are trying to dumb themselves down right. to what they perceive an audience wants you know movie music or pops <laughs> music which is fine i mean i love that i love that music and I, we've done pops type programs that are of mm-hmm. more popular music but um thinking that's what audiences only want i think is misguided you know, yeah. uh, arts organizations need to lead, not follow. And when you're being driven by the bottom line, yeah, you can't you it, can't afford to lead. You can't afford to be exactly risks, exactly. You know? So, and that's that's a, a deep problem now. Yeah. Um, and as I say, I don't know the answer to it. But in a way, um, New York Repertory Orchestra is lucky because we don't have the huge <laughs> responsibilities. Of enormous money, right? I mean, that's good news and bad news. <laughs> it's liberating. I would, yeah, yeah sure. we we kind of like we that. We can do what but, we want. Um, yeah. You know, many conductor friends of mine 
are uh, say they're jealous. I don't believe them, but they're <laughs> envious of being able to do the repertoire that we do, mm-hmm. which is pretty. Uh, we're not doing crazy, crazy music, but we're doing stuff that is not always heard, yeah, or even often heard, or not ever heard. Um, and you know, they may be with an organization where the policy is set a little outside of their mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. their say so. I mean, well, I'm envious of, you know, we're all envious of everybody. That's certainly the way the world works in a way. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, but I, th- I think that, uh, you know, we're lucky. That's in one way, we're very lucky. Yeah. We're, we're lucky because our people are great. You know, our musicians are wonderful yeah. human beings. And we're lucky that we can do what we want without, um, you know, without it really hurting us. Right, right. In the long term. Well, what you mentioned earlier on about, you know, things that musicians hate about conductors. As a conductor, what is the one thing that you hate a musician is doing? or What is the thing that gets to you about, you know, a musician? Or do you have that problem at all? I love every <laughs> musician who plays for me. Um, Not people who play for you, but, oh, you know, in no, general. No, but like, I, think that I, it's, uh, I think it's, we mentioned it earlier on, and that is... Um, you certainly want people to be good colleagues. Yes. And to be responsible and to be prepared. Right. After that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's gravy. Yeah. Because I mean I would I would never say this in a rehearsal to orchestra players. I would never say, you know, I'm prepared. Why you know everyone else here yeah, is prepared. Because yeah. that's my my view of being a conductor is that it's never ever about me I mean honestly I mean I I know many conductors who and I see many conductors for whom it is obviously about them and the thing that I love about conducting and playing golf is that (laughs) it takes you entirely outside of yourself you're not thinking about yourself right you're thinking about something else right and if and that's that, you have to sort of get rid of your ego as much as possible because when it's not about you, there can't be ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, that's something I learned from several wonderful teachers over my life, and um, but you do see that in in professional. I mean, I you know I work with professional musicians and singers, and you see that that their egos may be sort of coming up against musical decisions, right, and. I I would love for everyone only to be thinking about the music when that's what we're working on. Mm-hmm. After rehearsals at the bar, you can bitch about yeah, right, all this right. stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if during the pre- preparation rehearsals, if you're that um, committed to it, then you there's really not much to complain about. Yeah. Because you know what you're doing and you know what that everyone's committed and there's no um no one's sabotaging or you know what i mean no one is doing something evil for the sake of being evil you know people make mistakes and that's that's why you rehearse and that's why you practice and that's why you study at home but um if you you know music is so great because it takes you out of yourself and that's what's so great about performing and presenting music is that it takes you out of yourself to such an extent that 
you know, you're really exalted. I, I, I would never think to say that, you know, music makes people better because it doesn't. Music, I don't think music... I think it can inspire them to be better. I don't think that art in general makes people better people um, because just look around at the people who work in the arts. <laughs> and there are many examples where sure. they're not better people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't believe that, that art and music and art in general have this ability to elevate you as a human being. But for a period of time, they, they certainly can make you open to other experiences, yeah. which is a great thing. What you do with that afterwards is yeah, yeah, your own your own business. But um, you know, it's very moving to be in a performance of something, for instance, a work that lasts for an hour and a half, and you're done, and you think that no time has gone yeah, by. Yeah, what just happened? Right, yeah. this is just the the most amazing thing. It just all, has all gone by. You you perceive this whole this whole work as one idea. That's yeah. really great. I was just listening to an interview with Patrick Stewart, the, the actor. Sure. And he, he said something almost identical is that when he's doing a stage show, it's, he knows now I'm going to start, but for the next three hours, I have no idea. It's a blank. It's totally blank. Cause you're right. just completely in the present right. while you're doing it. Well, I'm sure that he would tell you that, that, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> That's it probably happens, on a good night. But yeah. when it does happen, it's amazing, and since everything is a golf analogy, you can be playing terribly, and it just takes that one good shot, Yeah, and then you around. say, I'm coming back. Yeah. And the same thing in music. You know, there are certainly times during a concert where you'll, because, you know, your job as a conductor is certainly to hear things, and you'll hear someone talking, or someone rattling mm. paper, or something drop. Uh, we had a concert last year it sounded like someone dropped a coffin in the back of the church <laughs> at one point at the quietest moment I, I thought what was that um, but there are other times that I, there are other times when things just sort of happen by themselves and that's yeah. really great and that stuff can happen inside music too I mean you know you hear something drop and you move on Yeah. you know you hear that thud um, it doesn't diminish but there are moments where things just come together and you're thinking oh my god yeah this is amazing transcendent why would i want to do anything else yeah that then it's all worth it well what do you have uh, i always like to close with what advice would you give to you know someone starting out in classical study really hard <laughs> learn the basics well um don't assume that things will happen overnight you know, like learning how to play an instrument. It takes years. Yeah. No one can learn to play an instrument well in a short period of time. And that's, um, that can be daunting because you want to get up and play right away. You want to just play the song and play, you know, play for your parents or play for your friends right away. And some instruments, it's easier to do that on a piano or a guitar, I assume. You, there are certain ways of doing that. Um, classical music, you just have to love it. And I've heard this before, and I, I've said it before, and I've heard other people say it, is that if you can't not do anything else, wait, if you can't not do anything else, do it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And if you can do something else, if you can picture yourself doing something else, then don't do it. Yeah. Because, um, uh, you know, only uh, it's a generalization. I wouldn't say that only people who can do nothing else should do it because many talented people can do other things. But um, you really have to want to do it more than anything else to achieve a level of uh, a standard for yourself that is, um, you know, you're going to be your own worst critic. And, and I am for myself. And if I know I'm not putting the work in, then I know that I've failed, that I'm failing. And, you know, I need to hold myself to a standard that I, otherwise I can't hold anyone else to a standard. Yeah. And that's the thing as a conductor, certainly. If I'm not prepared, if I'm not as prepared as possible, I may not be able to prepare as well as someone else, but I know that I prepared myself as well as I can, then I can't really hold anyone else to the same standard. And then they, then why should they, if I'm not prepared, why should they be? Sure. So, you know, I think it's, it all, it all comes back to um, being a good colleague, being a good person, being honest and about what you do and doing things for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons and doing things for your, because of, for yourself is I think always the wrong reason, Mm -hmm. you know, doing things for others and doing things for music. I mean, it sounds very pretentious in a way. But I, I don't think you can make music at a high level unless you are dedicated to it. Right, right. So whatever it takes to do that, you, I, I mean, I guess that's really the answer. Whatever it takes to, you need, whatever you need to do to achieve the best that you can achieve, you have to do that. You can't not do that. So if you know that, I, that you have to do X, Y, and Z, you can't just do X and Y and think, oh, it's good enough. right. Because you won't be happy. Right. And that's, I mean, that's, okay, so that kind of is about you. But, uh, <laughs> well, it's full circle. But, I mean, it, but, I, it, in but the it's, best sense, it's you know? also you relate, relating to others. Well, it's that I want to do this thing really well, both for me and because it's what the audience is going to be hearing. You know, yeah. I want to do the best thing I can for the audience because they're coming to see, you know, this. They could be elsewhere. They could be doing whatever, right. you know. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if I achieved it and it sounded great and the audience loved it, then sure, I'm proud of that. And as I should be because right. I put a lot of work into right. it. Right. And there'll always be things that you could do better. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's great. That's why you keep going. That's great. Yeah. I mean, you know, the great um, Yasha Heifetz, the great mm-hmm. great violinist of the 20th century you know he was a, a phenomenon as a kid I mean he was just brilliant right from the get-go and as an adult he realized that he realized that he had to practice <laughs> more than he did as a child <clears throat> mm-hmm. because he realized that he may have been giving less than he could and that his level of commitment to his own, sense of honor, his own sense of responsibility was to always be as good as he could be. Yeah. And he knew that he could be better. Yeah. Which is crazy because even his not so good was greater than everyone. But, you know, he had to be, he felt that he had to be his absolute best all the time. Mm -hmm. And that the level of work he had to do was uh, all consuming. And, And that's something I think that that maybe younger people, you know, people starting out or even 
uh, older um, kids who want to play don't understand the amount of work that's involved. It's just hours and hours and hours a day. I and mean, if you talk to anyone who plays in the New York Philharmonic or or and sings in the opera or plays in the opera or dances in the ballet, they yeah. are practicing all the time. Yes, they don't. You know, there's a, the old saying: it's if you don't rehearse for one, if you don't practice for a day, you know it. And if you don't practice for two days, your colleagues know it. And if you don't practice for three days, the audience, the audience knows, knows it. it. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. all right. Thank you so much. This has been great. I've enjoyed. Yeah, talking. that was good. What's the website? Uh, Nyro.org. Nyro.org. Excellent. And there's a Facebook page and. And people should donate. People should donate, but um, our concerts are free. Yes. That's uh, that's. Uh, I always want to mention that our concerts are free, unlike many other groups. We, you know, we suggest a donation, but we never turn anybody away. Mm-hmm. We have one concert a year that we actually require ten dollars. But we, we're there to give free performances of great music to the community, and um, all donations help us do that. Yes. but they're not required. But um, before giving. People should come and hear us. And if you have a timpani out there that you can loan them. Then. No, no. <laughs> if you have space to store a timpani. Oh, there you go. That's more important. And then you can, and can you ferry it to our uh, right, performance right, venue exactly. every week? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. There you heard it. If you have space for a timpani in the New York City area, please let David know. Well, that was excellent. If I learned nothing else, it is to take the word right out of my vocabulary. Right? It seemed like every time he said something, I would say, right? Yeah, right? Sure, I want to be agreeable, but, you know, it it, it gets annoying. Anyway, thank you so much, David Leibowitz. Uh, That was a really interesting interview for me. I hope it was for you as well. Thanks again for the use of the apartment. And, uh... Yeah, everyone out there, please go to nyro.org and donate. And go check out their shows. They are always free. There is a suggested donation, but um, you can walk in off the street and see some amazing classical music, such as the piece that we are going to hear on the outro, which is Dmitry Shostakovich, Symphony No. 10, Movement 2. This was a performance by the New York Repertory Orchestra on October 18th, 2014, of course, with David conducting. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty awesome, I gotta say. You know, I don't know a lot about music, uh, classical music, but Shostakovich, Stravinsky, some of those intense, stormy composers, uh, I can kind of dig, you know what I'm saying? So thanks again to David Leibowitz. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Again, as I always say, go to iTunes, rate, rate, what, right? <laughs> rate and review. Send me comments. Send me emails. Send me flowers. Send me, uh, send me, I don't know, jewelry? That, that probably doesn't make sense. Anyway, thanks again for listening. This is Make It Big. Here's some Shostakovich. Shostakovich. <laughs>